If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. You join me for The Bigger Picture when I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, what are we going to begin with today? Well, I think we're going to have to start with um, the proposals from the uh, European Union and various nations' reactions um, uh, to the conflict between Russia and Ukraine in terms of energy. Given that clearly Europe wants to wean itself off over initially Russian oil and then perhaps subsequently gas, what is Europe going to do? And... Um, It's quite interesting because um, Britain is in a comparatively safe place because um, we already have a fairly diverse um, uh, energy base. I mean, we do get some energy from Belgium, the Netherlands, France. We have a fair amount of solar. Um, We have some nuclear with a fair bit more coming, including plans for mini Hmm nuclear reactors, um, um, quite a lot of wind power, you know, there is a diverse base. Um, But given the prices that that a lot of people are suffering in this country and elsewhere, how are governments reacting? Well, we saw Rishi Sunak um, reduce um, uh, the the, um, VAT rate on energy bills recently um, by 5%. Italy, Um, has been doing a similar exercise. Um, They've provided their citizens with a huge, uh, nearly £12 billion support package to reduce energy, uh, increasing energy costs. Germany um, um, uh, has also made a a fair number of interventions. Um, They're creating, I think, now some medium to long term plans, as in Poland, about how they can wean themselves off Russian gas. But look, the big story across Spain, France, Poland, the Netherlands and elsewhere is that governments are using interventions to reduce taxes on energy to try and cap or reduce people's bills as best they can. And generally, people are trying to pivot away um, um, from Russian supplies. So this is a sea change. And what I think will happen is that Russia itself will, over the next few years, tilt more to China and Southeast Asia. It will supply more oil and indeed more gas in time, although gas will be trickier for them um, to, to the, 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 you know, to, to people in Asia. So an enormous sea change is underway and an awful lot of national treasuries and finance ministries are trying to paper over the cracks of of this change. Um, We've talked before about how we had hopes that Russia, after the collapse of the USSR, 
would become a, a more developed western leaning economy and you've talked many times about how you know they failed really to instill some of the basic principles of, of you know what we think of being as a, a you know relatively free market um, western economy you no know, property rights you talked about at, at length and that sort of thing uh, and and you have mentioned long before this just how dependent they were upon you know just getting things out of the ground and, and pushing them to the west which is not what you consider to be the mark of a developed nation so it's a massive sort of shot in the foot for putin surely this a miscalculation given that russia is so dependent upon oil and gas exporting yes i mean i think if you've been in the kremlin actually um um for a long time and, and, and going beyond oil and gas. I mean, if you go back over the last four or 500 years, there has always been this tension. Are you, is Russia primarily a, a, a European country or is it more of a, a Euro, uh, Eurasian um, landmass? And I think that because they've been in, the, in, 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 in this era so dependent on hydrocarbons and this war is such a disaster for them it really is going to you know uh, bring the barriers down between them and europe i think by default they are going to find themselves tilting eastwards and boy had they better get on with the chinese the indians and other people um in in that part of the world of course the big winner here uh, well there'll be there'll be several winners there'll be people in in the middle east there'll be countries like qatar who are major suppliers of gas um but the major winner, I, I think, in the next four or five years is actually going to be the United States, who are going to be, you know, fracking, uh, producing ever more oil and indeed um, exporting um, uh, liquid gas like it's um, yeah. <laughs> as never before. And, yes. and, and, and in a way, what Russia has done, um, it's perhaps inadvertently um, on the chessboard uh, played to the advantage of, of of the US economy in the medium and long term, but but it's going to make a lot of European countries ever more dependent on the US, therefore mm. those Euro-Atlantic bonds. Yes, and it wasn't so long ago we were talking about how China was about to take over the United States as being the world's largest uh, economy. And of course, given what's happened with COVID and the fact that the Chinese still seem to be pursuing this this. COVID, zero COVID um, policy, which keeps shutting down vast sections of their uh, economy, that, of course, is going to push the pendulum even further back towards the United States. It is. And, you know, because of the lockdown in China, um, that's having huge ramifications in terms of supply chains. There are many enterprises in the West uh, that can no longer get the component parts or the materials or the imports from there because they are in lockdown. So all kinds of enterprises are having to rethink um, their supply lines. Secondly, um, um, China is itself becoming ever more authoritarian because its strategy with COVID hasn't been brilliant. You know, its vaccination programme actually hasn't been brilliant, nor is Russia's. Um, you know, this is highlighting tensions related to issues of governance. But again, um, Europe and the United States and Canada, you know, have, have done comparatively well. Um, and, and I think that, that uh, this is going to be in the next, in the medium and long term, quite a shot in the arm for what, what we traditionally call the West. Yes. Now, obviously, the, the having to find other supplies of hydrocarbons um, 
is 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 going to be tricky and um fields in the north sea that we'd given up on uh, may actually be developed after all but one could argue as well that this may be an impetus towards alternative sources of energy that it might actually encourage people to 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 try and move even faster was clearly the problem before was almost that we were trying to give up on hydrocarbons before we'd actually got anything else in place i think that's right and i think we're going to see um um both in the united kingdom um, certainly france have all, all, already made this very clear they're going to have ever more nuclear power and i think probably what we're going to see is ultimately a u-turn in germany germany some years ago of course pivoted away from their nuclear energy program i think given the um, choices they face, I think they will probably feel compelled to move back and to perhaps reopen reactors, etc. Here, there are also, you know, talk of innovation. Uh, people like Rolls-Royce uh, and others are involved in developing a new generation of mini reactors. But the bottom line is, I think you're right. I think that new forms of green and clean energy will continue to grow um, and that we're going to see a lot more solar, I think a lot more wind, um, and, and, and a lot of innovative technology um, coming on stream. Um, so, I mean, I think over the next 30 or 40 years, we're going to see the West really significantly pivot away from um, the hydrocarbon economy. And that's significant because, of course, um, traditionally, the providers of, <laughs> of, of these hydrocarbon sources um, have been from perhaps um, the less stable parts of the world. So um, this is not just a matter of energy, but it also is a matter of security. True, though, of course, uh, as we've discussed in the past, uh, China has for many years been um, getting hold of the source of many of the rare metals and minerals that are needed for a greener world. Um, so it's it's not quite as simple as that, of course, is it? Well, it, you're absolutely right. But uh, I mean, who knew um, five or ten years ago that there were all kinds of um, um, resources, for example, um, um, in places like Cornwall? <laughs> yes, I thought you might say yes. You no, know, I mean, and, and the key point—they're looking for lithium there, aren't they? Exactly, and the key point here is that these things are you know not always uh, as predictable as some may like to persuade you mm. um you know there is exploration um oil companies energy companies spend a fortune on exploration and the reason they do is because we don't know where all these um yes. uh, uh, you know things are and and yes. so Yet no. another reason for thinking that a windfall tax on their profits might not be the most sensible idea, particularly given that they made massive losses during lockdown. Yeah, I mean, for, for example, Simon, I remember a lot of people in the noughties uh, talking about um, uh, energy and a coming hyperinflation because, you know, things are very difficult. Then magically, um, the United States and the technologists got involved in the world of fracking. Um, so, you know, we have, again, we have the word new in the English language for a very good reason. And if I was sitting in China, um, I wouldn't be sitting on my laurels just assuming that, yes, because we've had some gains yes. in various quarters of Africa, that somehow this is going to magically enable us to dominate the world's energy market. Quite frankly, I think again on that. 
Tim, thank you. Time for us, I think, to switch topics. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. I'm in conversation for the bigger picture on Share Radio with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Tim, what's our second topic, please? Um, The journalist Henry Hill. Uh, has written an interesting article. Uh, it, was, it appeared in Telegraph. It's called The Tories Must Save Themselves from Ideological Incoherence. And basically, he argues that uh, people like uh, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak um, and, and Michael Gove, they, they occasionally talk a good libertarian talk, but they don't deliver. They don't push through supply-side market reform in areas such as housing. Um, they're actually fairly nannyish. Um, taxes are, are in, in modern terms, at, at a record high. Um, and and they're, they're basically, um, uh, I think he's, Henry's arguing, they, they don't really know what they're about. Now, that's all well, well and true if you believe um, that British conservatism um, is about uh, principle and, and ideology. And certainly there are many people who do believe that um, mainly because they hark back um, to the days or the coherence of Thatcherism, rather like many people in the Labour Party hark back to the days of Clement Attlee and the coherence and the uh, and, and the principled agenda of of of, of Clement Attlee. Um, however, there is of course an older school of thinking um, that actually one of the beauties of British conservatism is that it isn't necessarily based on stringent principle or ideology. Um, if anything, it's, it's a sort of shape-shifting belief system that tries to meld whatever is perceived to be the best of the past with whatever is perceived to be right for the future. Um, and it's that dollar pragmatism um, that provides it with the elbow room and 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 its ability to find electoral fortune because wherever basically... Um, the middling sort go in Britain, be they the upwardly mobile working class or the uh, or the vast expanse of the middle class or or or, or the dregs of the upper class. Um, um, uh, you know, wherever they are, they're all at. The Tory Party will go. So, for me, I think Henry's article is interesting. But the real question is: Should British conservatism be ideological and principled? Or should it remain shape-shifting and pragmatic? And that, I think, is a very interesting and very difficult debate debate to answer. Yes, it's intriguing, I must say. I mean, he talks about uh, Boris Johnson and his libertarian songs. I mean, if you were used to reading Boris Johnson's articles um, in the years before he became well, mayor and um, prime minister, I mean, it was always with a libertarian slant. But you know, you can't quite imagine that Boris Johnson being keen on things like calorie counting on 
on menus or some of the other things that the government actually seems very keen on. Yeah, I, I mean, we've discussed before, haven't we, that often people go into politics, um, be it local government or they become a candidate, or indeed they go into politics through business or journalism. And when they're young, um, um, they they have the luxury of expressing their mm. principles and their philosophical views. However, when they're on duty doing the job in the cabinet, or dare I say a prime minister, well, their, their experience, I think, is they're rather more like corks bobbing on the tide of history. And whatever Boris Johnson's principles are or are not, I'm not sure he expected to be presiding when he won the election in 2019. He was expecting a few months later for there to be a pandemic or indeed more recently um, the conflict between uh, Russia and mm -hmm. Ukraine. Um, and, you know, did he really expect or, or even think about uh, the sort of levels of inflation that we're trying that we're starting to experience now? Did he think of that a year ago when he was focused on the pandemic? I'm not sure. So I think that when you are prime minister, your job description um, is that you're ultimately the minister in charge of everything. You know, if, if a bus is late in Bradford or someone um, is on a waiting list in Plymouth or, or wherever, um, you know, you can have questions in the house about it and it's sort of your fault. That is, uh, that, that those pressures uh, combine, I think, to, um, to make, um, most prime ministers deviate from their youthful principles and 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 their youthful wishes. So, um, but but uh, when you're dealing with um, uh, Russia, or when you're dealing with COVID, or when you're dealing with inflation, and you're trying to get growth going here, then you've got the reverse question: Do you in fact need, for good reason, to be a little bit more ideological and get back to your base? and push through those supply side reforms and, and you know, I don't know, open up uh, more um, market opportunities and housing for people to get in the ladder. So the question remains, and it's a question I'm not going to answer because no one's been able to yes. answer it. You know, Edmund Burke really um, couldn't answer it. Arthur Balfour, before Balfour, um, um, Disraeli, you know, they've all dealt with this conundrum. It's the balance, isn't it, between principle and pragmatism. Um, that's always the challenge for conservatives, uh, I think. Jim, thank you very much indeed. Um, time for our third topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University. Tim, what's our, our third and final topic, please? Well, our third topic is the, the United States of America and the, um, the row uh, that appears to be brewing in, in, in terms of um, the, the abortion debate. And, and for me, uh, it's fascinating um, because this is a debate that just tends not to, um, to exist um, in the United Kingdom. Often, the sort of debates that are had um, in America often resonate 
across the Anglosphere. You know, we are united by, <laughs> by a common language. We do share English common law. We're generally sort of democratic market-based societies. Yet there are these areas, abortion, I think, being top of the list, where, boy, is there just a different culture and different parameters of debate. And it, it, for all the heat um, and, and darkness and the light that is, that is shed on this in America, this debate just does not resonate in Britain. And this reminds me that, um, that, that America you know, was ultimately founded by people um, who had a particular worldview, often, uh, often rooted in strident religious views, and that whereas Britain uh, has become more secular, um, um, uh, um, that, that, that religiosity in America, you know, resonates and it does permeate popular consciousness and, and, and nowhere more so than the abortion debate. So whereas in this country, um, you know, I think people want to set limits, of course, um, on, the, on the age at which um, um, uh, uh, a fetus can be terminated, yet there's also an acceptance absolutely of the woman's right to choose. So there's a kind of a fairly secular balance, will you will. In America, it seems to me that people, um, there isn't much consensus and that people are at the outer reaches of both perspectives. And um, I find that extraordinary. The other thing I find extraordinary um, is how in this country, yes, Parliament sets sort of some parameters and guidelines, but the general perception, I think, is it really is, because this is such a, a matter for personal conscience um, and, and for sort of people in a voluntaristic sense, a non-coerced sense, to sort of sort out these matters themselves. Whereas in America, for a country that's supposed to be a land of liberty and freedom, boy, do major swathes of their population demand interventionism and, and state coercion to dictate, you know, prohibition, if you will. So I find this an extraordinary debate. I find that it's so polarized over there. It's so um, divisive. Um, whereas here, um, we just, I think, don't find anywhere, you know, the heat or the, yes. or, or the tensions or, or the extremes. I mean, this has come bubbling to the surface again, hasn't it? Because there's a, a leak that um, Roe versus Wade, the, the big yeah. case that decided um, the uh, government's attitude towards um, abortion, it might be overturned. Um, which would then presumably mean that individual states could decide themselves. Um, I mean, that's necessarily a bad thing, but abortion has always been one of the most divisive topics in the United States. But don't you get the impression that that, that division, with it seems far fewer people occupying a middle ground, has become more prevalent in American politics over the past five, 10 years. I mean, you know, one has to relate it to, to Donald Trump, who's a very divisive figure. Do you not think that generally America is becoming a much more divisive and divided society? I do. Um, I do. But um, 
that the division you're describing or the heightened division you're describing taps into deep cultural traditions and in this case uh, sort of politico-religious divisions that, mm. that, that actually resonate over the decades and over the centuries. Um, I was recently reading uh, a few days ago um, um, some academic works that were looking at letters uh, between um, uh, Queen Elizabeth I um, and uh, Ivan the Terrible and his court in Russia. And um, what struck me about this rich body of, of, of documentation, most of which um, is, is held in archives in Moscow, what struck me was that Queen Elizabeth I seemed to be primarily interested in the economics and trade with Russia, whereas Ivan seemed to be um, interested in trade, but more interested in political machinations and how he could, for example, potentially marry, um, um, you know, uh, perhaps certain women in England to to gain um, sort of a political foothold. So, it, it, you know, and, and what, what slightly depressed me about the, the letters was there was a slight dialogue of the deaf and there was an awful lot of um, huffing and puffing in um, in Russia, a lot of anger, often a lot of misunderstanding, on both sides a lot of talking past each other, and then five hundred years pass, and here we are. My point is that the the debate we're dealing with in the United States and abortion is so resonant of the sort of debate the, and the sort of religious debates um, and the religious perspectives that themselves gave rise to the United States. The point is that these cultures, they echo over very, very long periods of time. And, um, and uh, yes, America has always had these um, very robust views um, on abortion, whereas it's something uh, that for a long time here just has not resonated. That's not to say there are not people in Britain with particularly strong or uh, uh, strident views, but they've never become a, a sort of defining um, uh, and significant topic um, in public debate. British people tend to talk about, you know, healthcare or defence or welfare or transport. Or the weather. Or the weather, you know, yes. but in America, um, um, uh, abortion has yes. long been, I think, a totemic topic of, of debate. Jim, thank you very much indeed. That's Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University. Tim, I hope will be with me again in a fortnight's time. That's it for this edition of The Bigger Picture. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.